Good afternoon. All right, good afternoon everybody and welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm a vice president here at the Aspen Institute and executive director of our Economic Opportunities Program. And I am so delighted to welcome you to today's event uh, to talk about uh, reskilling America. So uh, we're really thrilled to here with us to uh, talk about her book and to launch her book, which uh, is officially out today. And there, and we will have time at the end of the event um, uh, to buy the book. There are books for sale at the end of the event, and you might even be able to get her to sign it for you. So, um, so do stick around with us for the whole event because because um, I think you'll you'll find it worthwhile. Um, so I'm just going to quickly go through uh, through a couple of logistics, and um, uh, so so one I. Uh, uh, I'm really glad that you're here with our Working in America event. We encourage you to tweet about them. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs, so please do silence your phones. Um, uh, I do want to thank our, our, our uh, funders for this, uh, the Ford Foundation, the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the Walmart Foundation, and the F.B. Heron Foundation. Uh, they support our Working in America series, and we couldn't do it without them. Um, this is, I think, I'm going to lose track. I'm looking for Vicky. She's not holding up enough fingers and toes there, but I think it's the 15th, 15th? Yes, okay. 15th event in our Working in America series. Um, and in this series, we've been talking about a wide variety of issues that low and moderate income working people face in today's economy and sort of highlighting issues, but also um, ideas for improving the opportunities available to um, working Americans in today's economy. So. Uh, if, you, if this is your first time joining us, you can see all of our other uh, conversations that we've had. It's at as.pn slash working in America. Um, okay, I think that covers it for me for now. Um, because what we're going to do is I'm going to invite Catherine up um, to, to spend 15 to 20 minutes just talking through um, some of the key themes of the book, this wonderful book that she has written. And then we're going to have a panel discussion uh, following that. And then we're going to have some question and answer from, from you all. So we really do want to engage you in this conversation. Um, so I'm uh, not going to spend a lot of time belaboring introductions. People are wonderful who are speaking. You can see their bios and the materials that you have. Um, so just please join me in a big, warm welcome for Catherine Newman. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you, colleagues at the Aspen Institute Economic Opportunities Program. I want to especially thank you on behalf of my co-author, Hella Winston, who wasn't able to be here today, but this is a joint effort of the two of us. Um, and I want to thank my fellow panelists who've done some, such important work that you're going to hear about later on today uh, for their interest in this book and, and for all the innovative work they're doing in moving workforce preparation forward. I want to start by saying a few words about the context for this book. Although national rates of unemployment have come down, fortunately, the Great Recession is still casting a huge shadow over the work lives of American young people. The youth unemployment rate in January of 2016 was 10.3 percent, was more than twice the national rate for all prime age workers. Inner city neighborhoods are in much worse condition than that. For example, in Chicago, nearly 60% of African Americans 
and 37% of Hispanics or Latinos ages 20 to 24 were out of work. Young men in Baltimore, the city where I started this project, face an unemployment rate of 37%. In Michigan, in 2015, the youth unemployment rate was nearly 60%, with Detroit the epicenter of that particular epidemic. This is a national catastrophe for these communities. It's a catastrophe for their families. Their families need these young people to become breadwinners, to emerge out of those neighborhoods with the tools it takes to earn a good living in the United States. But this is not just an inner city problem. Millions of 20-somethings in the middle class, in the cities, in the suburbs, and in the rural regions of the United States were left on the sidelines by the Great Recession. Meanwhile, on the brighter side, middle skill jobs, those that demand technical qualifications, but not necessarily a four-year college education, are going begging. By 2017, next year, 2.5 million jobs of this kind will be added to the nation's workforce, accounting for nearly 40% of all job growth. In New York State alone, close to 25% of these middle skill jobs go unfilled. The United States desperately needs to prepare a new high-skilled labor force. This is happening in fits and starts in some high schools and community and technical colleges around the country. But it is a fledgling movement, pushing uphill against the dominant view that a four-year college degree should be the goal of every American. Let me be clear, especially as a university provost, Universities are vital to the national workforce, to our human capital needs, and to the culture that we value so much. It's not for nothing that I've spent 30 years in this higher education space. But universities don't fulfill all the needs of our economy. There's a lot more to it than what we do. So can we move in this direction of high quality career and technical education? Well, as it happens, our history is filled with sterling examples of high-quality vocational education and apprenticeship training. Aviation High School in New York City, which I discuss at length in the book, was born in 1936, and it's still there today. It fueled American dominance of the aviation industry, providing skilled manpower to the military during World War II and all the wars thereafter, and it helped to build the aircraft manufacturing giants. Automotive High School, also in New York, did the same thing for the car industry. But these two schools are the last survivors of what was once a major investment in American vocational education. We gave a lot of it up. Other countries didn't. And now they are cleaning up in advanced manufacturing and other technical fields because their labor forces are the envy of the world. In Germany, for example, Young people who are not college-bound prepare for these careers by attending high-quality vocational high schools and take three-year apprenticeships at good wages for firms that employ them while they finish their training. The German dual education system is rigorous and demanding, and it relies on embedded mathematics, on engineering, on writing, and on social skills that advantage teamwork. It moves away from the college for all model that has been the American mantra for some time now. 
While many American educators, including many of my colleagues, worry that this road will consign industry-bound youth to a life as second-class citizens, the truth is that even their high school performance, when measured by test scores or persistence, are stronger than that of their counterparts in ordinary non-vocational schools. That is, they complete high school, and they complete it in better shape when they're in strong vocational programs than in ordinary non-focused high schools. And their ability to move on into higher education, should they decide that that's right for them, is not impeded, it is advantaged. In Germany, this kind of education is not a minority experience. 55% of German teenagers are in this kind of dual education system. The Germans boast a youth unemployment rate, are you ready, of 7%. 7%. We're talking about inner city unemployment in the United States of 50%. Now, there are many, many reasons why the German system is so successful and youth unemployment is so low, and training is not the only one, but it is a very important part of the picture. In fact, when German companies locate here in the United States, and there are something like 3,000 manufacturing subsidiaries here, they often set up similar kinds of apprenticeship programs because they can't find the skilled labor that they're looking for. MTU, for example, whose parent company is in Friedrichshafen, Germany, is just one example I could mention. A subsidiary of the Rolls-Royce Power Systems, the company manufactures diesel engines in Aiken, South Carolina. In 2010, they took in over 600 applications for available line jobs. They interviewed 250 people and they picked 60. They could select, this is when they first arrived in Aiken, they could select from among experienced mechanics who had worked in the auto body shops, the car dealerships, the Jiffy Lube stations in nearby Aiken. With those 60 people, they started producing engines and the first ones rolled off the production line in October of 2010. But once they were done with that initial wave of hiring, the company came to the conclusion it had tapped out all the labor that was skilled enough to meet their requirements. If they had been at home in Germany, MTU would have had a long line of apprentices to fill the rest of the demand. In Aiken, they had nothing. So that led the firm to build an apprenticeship program with high school students modeled directly on the dual program in Germany. 12 students from five of the high schools that feed into a tech center vied to get these spots in the program. MTU put them through an online mathematics course and tested them to find the best applicants. The apprentices they have have to be able to work within the European metric system and to read blueprints that come to them from the parent company in Germany. It was the firm's intention to create an apprenticeship program in Aiken, South Carolina that would not only enable young people to build diesel engines, but to pass the same rigorous tests that their German counterparts take to gain national certificates in industrial mechanics. In areas like this, in areas like Aiken, which were once textile centers that lost their employment base, the US version of the German system is starting to make a difference. It is starting to make to provide American students, usually in their 20s, with the skills they need to compete and jobs that pay them well. This is a solution we should be adopting all over the United States, especially in the former Rust Belt cities that are struggling to find a way back from the loss of factory labor from the past. 
The U.S. Department of Labor's Apprenticeship USA program enables employers to compete for $175 million in its apprenticeship program. This is important, but it is a drop in a very big bucket. Fewer than 5% of American youth are training as apprentices, and most of them are in the construction trades. We need to expand that investment. We need to increase state tax credits to encourage firms to get into this kind of program. And we need to diversify the reach of apprenticeship programs to include advanced manufacturing, information technology, and healthcare. We're going to hear more about that from one of my commentators today. We need to encourage high schools, community colleges, and regional technical colleges to recruit teachers with industry experience and to import the hiring networks that they bring with them as a consequence of their work experience so that they can swing into gear on behalf of their high-performing students. There are really four take-home messages uh, from this book that I hope we will be able to discuss today. First, we need a consistent policy, not an on-again, off-again investment in technical training. I did an interview in New York City on Friday with Brian Lehrer, who does one of the main uh, book panel, book review sort of uh, things on NPR. And he said to me, could we have had this interview in 1990? Seems to me I've heard this before. And the answer is yes, we've heard this before. Periodically, every 10 to 15 years, we get interested in this topic and then we let it drop. So we invest and then we drop it. And then we invest and we drop it. We don't have a consistent investment policy and that's what it's going to take. That's what other countries are doing. So my first message, we need a consistent investment policy. Second, it needs to be robust. It needs to provide for serious technical training at a high level with appropriate equipment, not a sort of cheap investment that doesn't really get us there and makes us feel like we're doing something when we're not really doing enough. So we need a, cons a consistent and robust policy. Third, we need to invest in community colleges. We need to invest in our high schools. A lot of our students don't go on to community college. We need to catch them in high school and offer these opportunities to them. We need to invest in regional training centers. These are effective because they create economies of scale. Not every single high school can afford to invest as we need them to. Regional programs which pull in a catchment area of four or five high schools can, are often a more reasonable investment. We need to make sure that those programs provide for on-ramps into higher education if that's what people want or workforce opportunities if they want to go straight to work. This is not impossible. It turns out 40 years ago at the University of Massachusetts where I work, we had exactly a program like this with General Electric, which enabled people either to go directly into the workforce or on into engineering training. They could go in both directions. And the fourth point I want to make is that vocational education, technical education alone is not enough. It has to be coupled with apprenticeship. Why is apprenticeship so important? First, we must understand that no matter how strong a school system is, no matter how well supported it is, and we have a lot of problems with both of those, school systems are never going to have either the resources or the incentive to keep up to date with the leading edge technologies. But the firms that people work in do, or they go out of business. That's where the leading technology is. That's where the knowledge of the most recent uh, manufacturing techniques or information technology uh, knowledge is located. So a program that simply invests in schooling will not be sufficient. It must be schooling coupled with apprenticeship. Apprenticeship not only ensures that people get up to date 
training, but it provides them with connections to employers, with opportunities for networking that are crucial for their ability to find work. Let me conclude with just a little tiny anecdote about one young man that I met uh, in Germany in, in a steel mill near Osnabrück. At 18, Johann, who is a, as I said, a German teenager working as an apprentice at the Georg Marian Hoot steel mill on the outskirts of Osnabrück, is earning about $1,200 a month, and that was three years ago. For every 12 months that Johann serves as an apprentice, he qualifies for a 13-month bonus. When he finishes his training, he has a job waiting for him that will pay him three times this wage. He's had classroom experience with precision lathes, with electronics, and with graphing calculators. He has trained for three years under an experienced Meister or master teacher who will see him through a demanding series of national examinations. This kind of training, this kind of preparation, this kind of opportunity is what we should want for every single young adult in the United States especially those young men and women in cities like Baltimore and Detroit who deserve a much better future than the one we're handing them. Thank you. invite the, the panelists to take, and I guess we're going to do a little bit of like intermission at the theater or between innings at the ball game where people can come in while we're taking our seats here and fill in. So um, uh, it's great that we've got lots of folks who were, were hiding out in the overflow space who can come in and have a chair and join us in the room. Um, great. So, um, so that was that was a terrific setup, and I have to just say, from the perspective of the Economic Opportunities Program, which I run now, from the Workforce Strategies Initiative, which I founded within the Economic Opportunities Program and still direct. I mean, these are issues that we've been we've been working on for for really a, a very long time. I think you saw some of the materials that were out on the on the table. Um, we have more. Um, <laughs> um, we've really, we, you know, these issues of, of, of skill, skill acquisition, and how people can connect. And, and I think Catherine's book is just is really terrific in bringing together a lot of the issues that have been, as she mentions, longstanding issues, issues that we come into and out of, and, and, and really thinking about how do, we, how do we build sustainable solutions and what have been some of the barriers to that. So, so we're, gonna, we're going to, to dig into that um, in this panel. And I, just, I guess there's um, a couple of things that I just want to say from my perspective of, of having done some research and work in this field. One is that um, I, think, I think Catherine frames the issues very nicely for, for young adults today, um, but it's not just the young ones. Uh, we've also been talking about lifelong learning for a long time, and you know, it's not just kids, but also their parents that need opportunities for skills. And I think we really need to think about the um, ways that community colleges and other skill building systems can be flexible in bringing in um, older older people who are looking to reskill, and and not just not just uh, kids. I I don't think I see a lot of heads nodding. I don't think I'm going to get a lot of arguments in this room about that. Um, uh, and and the other thing that I think is 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 great in um, and that and that Catherine often references is that it's community colleges can be central players in this, but they're they're not. We don't necessarily expect them to to do it alone. Um, in some of the research that we've seen, and particularly for people who are more economically struggling, this opportunity to um, to have a, an organization that can help people. Uh, 
find support and stability in their lives so that they have in time, the time and, uh, and focus that they need to focus on learning rather than sort of trying to keep their life together. And then, and then the importance of connections to employers and those partnerships with employers is, is also central. Um, so those are some things that really just come to mind for me for the, and for the work that we've done for, for a long time. But um, I have uh, great friends here on the panel who have also been working for a long time on these issues. And um, so let me quickly say who they all are and then start asking them some <coughs> questions. Uh, so right next to me, I have Michael Johnson, who is senior advisor and retired chief human resources officer uh, from UPS and uh, now chief executive officer of Johnson Talent Development. Um, we have next to Michael, we have Dr. Catherine Newman. And next to Catherine, we have Andy Van Cloonan, Chief Executive Officer of the National Skills Coalition. And to my far left, we have Sandy Vito, Director 1199 SEIU League Training and Upgrading Fund. And Sandy, I'm going to start with you. Um, you are the Director of a Joint Labor Management Training Partnership, providing career and technical education for adults. Um, and it'd be great if you could just sort of give people uh, sort of an overview of what that does, and tell us a little bit more about um, sort of the ways that you, you've been addressing these, particularly in the, in the healthcare work that you do. So just to start, we're the largest and oldest industry partnership in healthcare in the country. We were created in 1969 through a collective bargaining agreement. And we are jointly governed by employers, home care agencies, hospitals, nursing homes, and 1199 SEIU, which is a, um, an SEIU local that represents about 400,000 healthcare workers. And so our job, we, we are essentially an education trust. Um, the employers contribute a percent of payroll. And with that money, uh, frontline healthcare workers access benefits in order to meet their career aspirations, but it also meets the needs of industry by filling shortage areas. And so our programs range from high school completion, college prep, all the way up to PhD in pharmacy and everything in between. So RNs are a big core part of our program, but increasingly so is um, community health work and care management. And so one of the things that we do is shift as the industry shifts. We serve about 40,000 people. So we have about the size of a small or large community college, um, the number of people that we serve every year through those variety of programs. Great, great, thank you. Um, so Michael, let me come to you next um, from sort of the employer investment. And UPS has um, you know, uh, had a variety of investments in education and training of its employees then that you're uh, very familiar with. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit about, about that and about also the partnerships that the company has had with um, secondary and post-secondary institutions. Yeah, be happy to, Maureen. First of all, I thank uh, Aspen Institute for putting this on and certainly uh, Proud to be up here with my colleagues to talk about this very, very important subject. Just by way of backdrop, I think it's it's probably first important to talk a little bit about, you know, why UPS is so in, in interested in this. Um, you know, fundamentally, you know, as an organization, we we have really believe wholeheartedly in development and giving people opportunities. I'm, I'm a recipient. I just finished a 40-year career at UPS, and when I yes, it was 40 years. <laughs> Started before there you was child child labor law. <laughs> But, but um, I started as a part-time loader-unloader. And you know, when I finished, I was uh, CHRO for a you know, global multinational organization with 400,000 employees. So that journey was underpinned by development programs and giving me opportunities and supporting me, both at the organization and you know, educational you know, background. 
But I think, um, you know, just a couple of things I'd like to just to speak about. The, this this uh, concept of consortiums and partnerships I think is very important. So let me just talk about three that, that are uh, very key to, uh, to UPS's success in running our operation. The first one is, uh, was started back in 1998, and it's uh, housed in Louisville, and it's our Metro College program. And Louisville is, is where we have our world port, our, our you know, global air operations centers in Louisville, Kentucky. So as you, you can well imagine, a lot of hiring, you know, a lot of opportunities to bring people on. But more importantly was what are you going to do with the people once you bring them on? So from a recruiting perspective, and more importantly from a development and retention perspective, it was very key for us to think differently about how to offer our employees something different. So the something different was a consortium or a partnership that involved the University of Louisville, uh, Jefferson County Community and Technical College, as well as you know, the state of Kentucky and, the, and Louisville met, Metro uh, City um, government officials. And we've come together is to provide our employees the opportunity to not only work for us, but to actually go to school and, and actually earn uh, either uh, their undergraduate degree or master's degrees or also technical support or technical education and, and development. And be able to do that actually either at one of the campuses, um, uh, either at University of Louisville or Jefferson Community College, or actually even have some classes on property uh, at UPS. Now, of course, that's a very costly program to do that. And so we have to, you know, we've made a substantial investment. Also, the state's made a substantial investment. And also, the schools have made substantial investments to help support and underpin that. But it's been very successful because the, the percentage of people that have graduated has, has continues to grow. Uh, we also have great retention rates for those folks that, that come through that program. And that's important to us because of this promote from within philosophy that we have as an organization. So that's one. The second one uh, is, I'll speak about is, is similar in nature. Uh, it's the Chicago Regional College Program. And that was started when we opened up our largest ground sorting facility in the Chicago metro area. And it was, it was uh, always an, it was interesting where we, we built the building. It's a great location to build the building. There was just no people around it to hire. So in comes HR, right? <laughs> we go find the people, not only recruit them, but also bring them in. And how, do you, how are you going to work on developing them and, and, and retaining them? So, um, we partnered, again, with the state of Illinois, uh, with seven colleges in the Chicagoland area, mostly community colleges, some state colleges. And we came together and said, can we build a program that can take our existing tuition assistance uh, programs that we have for our employees and put some speed uh, to that and some investment behind it to get a better outcome? And again, great retention rates, good development, you know, good opportunities for our people to grow and take advantage of the promote from within uh, processes we have at the company. But again, it was bringing these, these groups together, everybody having to put a little skin in the game to help bring uh, some traction and some success to that. Uh, the third program I'll talk about is, is a little different, but we were also noticing in our tuition assistance programs a, a, a increase in the number of people that were using online education, right, as an opportunity to work part-time for us and then also uh, go uh, try to finish your, your education. And we we noticed that there was uh, some fallout, you know, people starting and stopping, and we wanted to offer our employees something different, so we partnered with Thomas Edison State College. And we were looking for an organization that could do three things for us. One was to provide a uniform way for our employees to actually go online and, go and, and use our tuition assistance programs. Number two, we asked them to go and assess some of our internal training programs that we offer 
our employees to provide some accreditation that can be folded into their, their college matriculation process. And they were able to do that. And then the third piece was to provide an ease of use mechanism for people. So uh, ability to kind of you know, sign up for the program, complete the programs, and then also uh, we would actually pay the bill after you have to do a completion, not the employee having to really get in the middle of that. So those are just three, uh, what I call these partnerships that we formed, all kind of cemented and, and foundationally built on the need for our organization. We had a need to do this, and we didn't want to go it alone. Um, and I think there's, there's opportunities to do, to do more of that uh, going forward. So. Great, great, thank you. Um, so that was a terrific sort of set of partnerships that involved you know, sort of the company and the public sector and of course workers themselves investing their time and energy and learning skills and, and building better careers. And, and, and you've sustained these partnerships for, for some time. Yes. Um, but as Catherine was describing sort of on the policy front that we had, haven't always sustained our, our investments. And so Andy, I'm coming to you and I see we wrote down that in three minutes you are supposed to tell us about all the federal policies that support career and technical education and tell us what the status of them is and then know what states are doing and if there are any standout states. So um, I should probably just shut up and say go, right? Sure. Like, <laughs> I'll try to keep it. We can go into it in more detail. So, um, and first, uh, thank you, Catherine, for the My book uh, and for many of the folks in the room who are doing this work. It's incredibly useful when we continue to kind of lift up what we feel is an under-discussed, even as things are much better here in Washington than I say they were 10 years ago, the value of career and tech education as it is seen by both students and companies on the ground, we, we still need to kind of bring it more into the main part of our education policy discussions here in our country. So, the main uh, program from the federal level that invests in career and tech is the Carl's Perkins Career and Technical Education Act. Um, we currently spend about $1.1 billion a year in grants to states to help set up those programs. Uh, so that is actually shared between a state's high schools and its community colleges. Different uh, states uh, do that sharing in different ways. But about two-thirds of it goes to high schools, about a third to community colleges. Um, that's only for program development. So it's not really paying for any individual to go into those career and tech ed programs. A billion dollars, when you think about how much we're spending on other things, for instance, we spend $30 billion a year on Pell Grants at the federal level. So $1 billion, which is actually supposed to be developing programs that are continually being upgraded, retooled, keeping in track of what's going on with industry, that's an incredible challenge. Uh, and for folks who are in the local business community, that's a particular frustration. So many of them who want to hire people out of the local college or the local high school, um, but recognize that the equipment and the programs that these schools are being forced to work with are just not keeping track. So we do have businesses that are donating equipment, doing things like that, but we really feel like there's a capital investment there that just needs to be made if we're going to make sure that these programs are relevant uh, to people who are in these classrooms before they actually start to work on the job. Uh, so in terms of what's going to happen with Perkins reauthorization moving forward, uh, we were expecting a bill out of the Senate Help Committee actually this month. It's been somewhat delayed. We hear that the House Education and Workforce Committee is now working on their own bill. So we're not going to get through this, obviously, by the end of this Congress. But there have been ongoing conversations. And we think in the next Congress and with the next administration is when we're really going to start to make some decisions on some of these issues. Um, 
One thing I will mention is that in terms of what we like to see come out of Perkins reauthorization, the level of kind of industry engagement that we're talking about uh, that uh, both uh, Sandy and Michael talked about, we just think that that needs to be something that is clearly part of how it is that we're structuring career and tech ed programs. We don't think we necessarily want every high school and college to go out and create their own sector or industry partnership. There's no reason if a high school or a college in New York City is training people for healthcare jobs, there's already an intermediary through uh, 1199 SEIU that can kind of talk about what it is that a range of different employers within the industry are looking for. And we think we can leverage some of those existing partnerships. The Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act, or WEOA, which is out of the Department of Labor, which was just reauthorized and is now being implemented in the states, uh, is, has an expectation that these sector partnerships are going to be part of how it is that planning and implementation is done. There are some states that have decided to actually try to align what's going on between their WIOA planning and how they're operating their state-level Perkins Career and Tech Ed programs. So there's five states that we know of so far, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Ohio, Delaware, and New Hampshire that have submitted combined plans bringing together WIOA uh, and Perkins. There may be others. We haven't read all the plans yet. Uh, and so that's something that we think makes a lot of sense because ultimately, it's we owe it can actually pay for people to go into some of those career and tech ed programs, particularly within community colleges. Uh, and so we need to have both the support for the students as well as support for the programs to make some of this work. The only thing I'll mention very quickly, because I know I'm way past my three minutes, is uh, <laughs> on apprenticeship. So since Catherine talked about that a lot in the book and in her comments, I think we should acknowledge that this is, there's been a real sea change here in Washington over the past few years in the uh, attention that's been given to apprenticeship. Uh, uh, the president has set a goal that he wants to double the number of registered apprentices in the country. Uh, we have about 300,000 or so other folks mm -hmm. in the room who can give a more exact number about kind of where we are in terms of the number of active registered apprentices we have currently in this country, but we want to take that number up much higher. Uh, we have uh, the, the uh, administration put out, as Catherine said, a little over $170 million in discretionary grants out of the Department of Labor. Perhaps even more importantly, we actually had Congress to authorize an additional $90 million in funding for apprenticeship expansion uh, in the current fiscal year. Uh, it's not the $2 billion that the president asked for, but the fact that it was something that Congress passed is a good step in the right direction. We're going to need to do much more. And quite frankly, at some point, I know this is a conversation that we'll want to have, if we want to take apprenticeship to scale the way it is, it's operating in some of the countries where uh, Catherine was writing about in her book, it's not just labor policy, it truly is education policy. And there's a number of problems with how it is that we structure K-12 policy and higher ed policy in this country that makes it hard for us to leverage those much bigger systems to bring work-based learning and career and tech ed uh, to scale here. Great. Thanks, Sandy. So, okay, it took a little longer. You had a lot of ground to cover there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, Catherine, I, I want to switch gears a little. Uh, you have this nice reflection in the book, not only about sort of like the, the tactics, but also the values that kind of are guiding some of our decisions around what kinds of education we value, what kinds of education maybe we don't value as much. And, and you know, and I think also we can sort of see that in some ways in, in how we think about work as well and the values that we, that we by extension, bring to certain kinds of jobs or don't. Um, but I was wondering if you could just sort of re reflect for us you know, how you see values kind of playing a role in shaping um, our approach to career technical education. I think any time we're talking about policy, we're talking about values as well, because it is the sort of commitments and normative ideas about what makes for a good life that underlie a lot of our policy, uh, shall we say, um, episodic interest in these questions. Uh, since the Second World War, the recipe for a middle class life has run straight through the white collar labor force. 
And that fueled the huge growth in the sector I work in, in higher education. And it tended to lead toward the view that that's what everyone should want uh, for every child. And that, in turn, engendered a very heavy investment, and appropriately so, in higher education. But it also spurred disinvestment in other kinds of careers. So I think there was a fundamental loss of respect for blue-collar labor, a loss of respect for many aspects of service sector labor, and a view that only one pathway will work in the world. And this, I think, is a great tragedy because it takes everyone. It takes all of those different career paths to make a strong economy. There are two circumstances under which these general biases that I think stem from at least uh, the late 1940s onward, war and recession. In wars, we recognize that we have to have an industrial labor force, that we've got to have highly qualified people, because if we don't get the hardware behind our troops, uh, we, we will fail. So we've had, we've had a lot of investment spurred during periods of war. And then recessions uh, are the other circumstance in which we see some of these values sort of knocked off the, their pedestal. Because in powerful recessions, we begin to realize that these high rates of unemployment, especially if they're sustained for as long as they were after the 2008 recession, fundamentally damage entire generations. But because fortunately wars end, and hopefully so do recessions, our attention to these issues tends to wane. And so the US has a problem with consistency. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to hear about the work that my colleagues up on this uh, platform are doing. And I'm sure we would all recognize the enormous contribution they're making, but this, it's the sustaining question that I think we really need to confront as a country. Because you cannot ramp this up and ramp it, drop it. If we do that, we end up with a completely inconsistent investment, and it does not produce the kind of strength, uh, dependable strength in the labor force that we really need. It takes the kind of coordination that we see in other countries, which is difficult in the US. Our labor unions have been hammered. They are an important. Uh, stool in that three-cornered leg in, in Germany and in Switzerland, labor, education, and private sector. Those are participating and collaborating and cooperating sectors that all together make up the support structure underneath the dual education system. We have a more difficult time achieving that kind of cooperation and making it last. It's going to take all of those partners and their commitment to quality. So let me end by saying that another value we need to underline is the value of talent, skill, and high levels of human capital. The great advantage that our European counterparts have is that they are taking the high road. They have recognized that their prosperity as countries depend on having extremely skilled labor. The reason that the German economy has done so well, although it has its rocky moments recently, is that they are the ones who've been refueling or fueling in the first place Chinese uh, development, right? That they are the people putting the railroads in and the high-tech manufacturing into China. That's all come out of the German labor force. And they can do that because their skills are second to none. We, too, will not really ever be able to compete on the low road, and we shouldn't want to. Our wages are too high for that, and so our ability as a country to remain prosperous depends on investment in human capital. It depends on consistent training so that we can go out and compete with other countries that have also invested heavily. But that depends on recognizing that one of the great values in this country is labor of all kinds, of occupations of all kinds. 
that we all make contributions at whatever education level we have, whatever skill level we have, and it takes all of us in order to make a strong economy. And I do think we tend to forget that outside of wars and recessions. Great, thank you. Um, Andy, I'm, I'm gonna come to you next because you have had this um, middle skills campaign and really have been focusing on how do we, um, how do we uh, raise attention, raise awareness of the importance of middle skills jobs? How do we sort of encourage people to value them more? And I'm also going to give a little warning to Sandy down there that I'm going to ask her to comment on this question as well from the perspective of caregiving occupations, because we talk a lot about sort of trades occupations and industrial occupations that help us sort of compete globally. But we know that as a country, we also have rising care needs. And so we need to be able to think about how we value those <laughs> occupations as well. But, but Andy, I want to I want to start with you to sort of talk a little bit about what you've been doing to encourage um, sort of more awareness and values and, and, and what you think has been working or resonating with people in terms of that campaign. Well, as you could imagine, uh, when policymakers have been making decisions about where we should be putting our educational priorities, if most of our policymakers have gotten university and graduate uh, educations, and they have those aspirations for their children, they would assume that that's where it is that we should be moving our educational priorities as well. Um, and while there was certainly an argument uh, 30, 40 years ago that we needed to expand access to post-secondary education uh, much more rapidly than we were doing so, we did kind of forget that there actually is a labor market out there. And so one of the things that we've just been doing is kind of trying to put the information out there with the help of folks like Harry Holzer and Bob Lerman and others to say, actually, the plurality of job openings in almost every state in this country are going to require some kind of certification past high school but probably not a four-year degree. Training for that certification doesn't mean that you can't go on to get a four-year degree, and I think that is part of the ongoing challenge is to get folks to recognize that these are not, these are not dead-end training opportunities. It gets you into a job, it gets you to earn a good wage, you can build a career, and you can go back to school and get your, mm -hmm. get your bachelor's or the graduate degree mm -hmm. if you want to do that later mm -hmm. on. And I think that the business community has really been very useful in trying to pick up on this issue. The other thing I will just say that has actually helped uh, although I would love to think that it's all our promoting the importance of middle skill jobs, there has been growing skepticism about the value of a four-year degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, as student debt has gone up, there are policymakers now who and governors, uh, members of, the, of Congress and others who are saying, what are we doing? We're saddling all of these young people with this debt. Uh, their employment prospects, some of them are not great. It really depends on the particular program you pursue, the particular degree. And we have people who are getting uh, you know, shorter term certifications who are earning more than folks who are, who are racking up tens of thousands of debt on a bachelor's degree. So I do think that it also is a reality that some of the shine has come off mm -hmm. of the college for all. Mm -hmm. We need to find something in the middle there that makes sure that everybody who wants to go to college can go to college, but that we're opening up many more of those opportunities for the folks who could actually get into that good job and then make some decisions later on about whether or not they want to go back and finish off a, a university degree. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Thank you. Cindy, I just thought you might want to chime in on this from the perspective of healthcare and caregiving since it's such a growing uh, piece of our economy. Yeah, I think I want to make three points. Um, the first point I want to make is that not all middle skilled jobs are middle wage jobs. And so that matters. And I think one of the ways to navigate this, well, I actually want to tell a little story. So when I was working in Pennsylvania, um, I was working in government. And we had all these conversations with uh, um, higher ed folks. And they were talking about creating these career ladders in career and technical education. And so on paper, they looked really lovely. You know, this, this skill goes with this skill, but it was not very deeply embedded in the industry. And so what you didn't have was really a progression. So you might get a certificate in something that really didn't lead to much. And so I think to really get at the middle skill and middle wage 
and the progression of a career, it has to be deeply embedded in the industry so that you know what the mm -hmm. opportunities are. Mm -hmm. So just in our own industry, we're in a little bit of a crisis in healthcare because our labor market looks like an hourglass now where it used to look like a ladder, right? Mm -hmm. So more and more, we call it credential creep. Um, a physical therapist needs a doctorate now, right? Mm -hmm. So you have lots of home health cert aides who get certifications, certified nurse assistants, medical assistants where some people consider middle skill, but if you're working in a doctor's office, it's not a very high wage job. Mm -hmm. And the path to these higher wage jobs, the entry level for nursing is increasingly becoming a bachelor's degree. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that our industry in healthcare can't overcome it, but it has to, Career and technical education has to be embedded in the industry in which it sits in order to work deeply with the employers who have a vested interest in retaining people who are caregivers in the industry to figure out what those progressions can be. And so as we move into more community-based health, that's, you know, for those of you not steeped in the industry, um, care is... The, we're, we're in a transformation period where we're trying to move care, more care outside of facilities, outside mm -hmm. of hospitals, outside of nursing homes. And so as more of the care is in the community, there are new career pathways and you have to partner with the industry to both make sure that there are floors and that middle skills are rewarded appropriately and that there are you know, sort of what we call stackable credentials so that there are um, opportunities to advance. Great, great, mm -hmm. thank you. Um, so I want to add, uh, think, think a little bit more about sort of um, uh, different roles and also this, this question of, of sustaining relationships. So, um, uh, so Catherine notes in her book that one of the factors impeding sort of success and sustaining is, is we, have, we have sort of this idea of, of education is over here and employers are over here and they kind of are separate, right? Mm -hmm. and, and we need policies to support, and here I have to have one quote, right? So <laughs> more intentional, permanent, sustainable relationships between industry and education. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so the question, I guess, really, that I'm framing in somewhat different ways for you all is, is how, do, how do we get to these um, more sustainable re relationships? And Sandy, I'm going to start with you and your role you know, at, at a labor management training partnership. You have education training industry. You have the role of the union. Um, tell us more about sort of these connections, uh, how they work together, what's the role of the union in particular, and how does this bring value to the industry, to your constituents? Well, so first I want to say the employers invest. So our employers um, fund half a percent of their payroll, mm -hmm. and the union negotiates that. So that means that workers are giving up what would, could have been a raise. So I think the investment, and a lot of times people talk about sustainability, but that also gives purchasing power. It leverages the public dollars. So I think the investment is important. I also think opportunity. So. My colleague Michael talked about, well, you just don't want to educate, right? You have to have advancement opportunities. So working collaboratively, um, the advancement opportunities then become clear, some of what I talked about. But then really to Maureen's point, we're an intermediary, and so we're very deeply embedded. We don't just survey our employers, we live with the employers, right? So I want to not in our homes. Um, <laughs> sometimes it feels like that, but uh, so um, you know. So if there's a change in the industry, we're the first to know. They, you know, they tell us. We hold forums multiple times a year, either occupation specific or sector specific, to understand what the trends are. We know what the retirements are. We know who's hiring what types of skills, and then. 
we have the ability to align in a, you know, since 1969 systemically with the, the education system, both at the CTE um, level as well as the community college and senior college level. Sometimes that is a great partnership, but sometimes it's a little bit of wrestling. So um, because the higher ed has to have things approved by the State Board of Education, there are a whole bunch of approvals. They're sometimes not as nimble as the industry needs them to be in terms of making changes. And so I would say that that's a real barrier. But the way it essentially works is the industry knowledge gets shared. Um, and then the employers also provide a lot of the work-based learning. While we don't have an apprenticeship model, most uh, healthcare occupations have some clinical rotation. And we think that we need more of that work-based learning. So I was happy to see that in uh, Catherine's book. So, it really is, again, I, I keep using the word live, but it really is about sort of living and breathing the industry and finding ways to communicate that to the, the, multiple, you know, the multiple avenues of uh, career and technical education. Great, great, thank you. Michael, I'm gonna come to you next. When we were talking over lunch, you were talking about a variety of the things that UPS did, not only in partnership, but, but also to invest in in-house training. And, mm -hmm. and, then, and then you were also talking some about different ways that you partner mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. with um, career and technical education mm -hmm. institutions. So maybe you could, you could share that a little bit about what you see as the role of employer in terms mm -hmm. of the, or the multiple roles that employers mm -hmm. can play in terms of building skills and, mm -hmm. and working with career and technical education. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this, this question about, you know, uh, my colleague was, was spot on, is what is education preparing, you know, their students for? And then where are the needs, right? Are you trying to find that sweet spot between the preparation and the needs? And so let me tell you a, a story. I think this kind of illustrates it best. I mentioned this large sorting facility that we built in uh, Hodgkins, Illinois, uh, the Chicago Area Consolidation Hub. And so if you can picture, you know, a building with, it's about eight or nine football fields under roof that size building, right? And uh, inside the building is a myriad, you know, of conveyor systems and, and technology systems that keep the, you know, the packages moving from unload through sorting through loading to, to keep the network uh, running on time. And uh, as, after we got the building up and running, you know, one of the key roles in keeping that facility operating at, at peak efficiency is a role called a plant engineering manager. And so those are the folks that actually make it all work from behind the scenes. So if something were to, to not work or break down, they were, they're not only trying to prevent those things from breaking down, but how do you repair them quickly to keep things moving? Because the building runs pretty much 24 hours a day, right? So kind of picture that. And what we found is that it wasn't, we have little to no turnover because it's a very high paying job, very good wages, very good benefits. But the challenge was is that we weren't able to bring enough people in to fill the needs. And so, again, starting to think differently about how do you change the recruiting model, we went to local community colleges, you know, Moraine Valley and Daly College in Chicago, and realized that they had programs that they, were, that they had in place, but they really weren't addressing what our needs were. So we sat down with the representative and said, what if we build a program where we could take our requirements to be a plant maintenance engineer and kind of fold them into what you all already have in place and at the end of the day, our, our goal or our outcome measure was to get people hired and to get them in through the apprentice program, journeyman mechanics, and actually be a full-fledged plant engineering, engineering person. And so in 2009, we started this. And, and the good news is we've had north of about 300 participants you know, that have gone through the program. And we've got north of about 70 folks that have actually completed the program and now went from in, our internal employees that we actually went internally and recruited 
uh, went from part-time jobs to these very high-wage, very, very uh, secure uh, uh, wage-earning positions. And so they were able to change you know, their, their livelihood, if you think about it. And it was all because you know, we had uh, the ability to sit down and have the educational technical schools listen to us and we were able to help supplant some of you know, the, the, uh, the curriculum that they were already in place, all with an intended outcome, right? And I mean, that's just one of many examples, but it was, it was also very important to us because we needed those folks that are very critical to our operation, and who better to do it but our own internal people if we can get them trained, right, and certified. So it's, it's a win-win. Great, thank you, thank you. That's an excellent example, because uh, that takes me right to you, Andy. You've been working for a long time, and we've, you know, heard this story many times, right? Of sort of the education system is training for one thing, and industry needs another thing. And what? How do we really think about building systems where these needs can more intentionally align? And you've been working for a long time on how do we get policy to better support that kind of communication, so that we're kind of driving in the same direction. And maybe you could just tell us what you see working in that space and what you think policy can do to kind of address that? Well, I think, you know, to use the UPS example, and, you know, Catherine wrote about several of these in her books, um, in her book, rather, where you've got uh, large companies who have kind of the breadth and the leverage to be able to get a series of colleges or high schools or training partners together to kind of figure out what can we do. We're hiring a lot of folks here, not just maybe in this state, but several state region. Um, and I think that, uh, and interestingly, a lot of the examples that Catherine wrote up were larger foreign-owned firms that were coming here for domestic operations, mm -hmm. and they're bringing some of that model with us. I think what we're concerned from a public policy perspective is what about all of those smaller employers mm -hmm. who are only going to be hiring a couple people a mm -hmm. year that no college is going to set up a training program for them. Mm -hmm. And so this concept of trying to kind of, and the other thing that we don't have here in this country that some of these other countries that Catherine wrote about was we really don't have a you know, an industry or industrial labor policy, right? So we don't really, we don't have, a, certainly have a national labor policy. Even our states don't really kind of have a strategy for manufacturing and a strategy for healthcare. There are some states, when Sandy was uh, in the administration in Pennsylvania, they actually did try to develop a set of strategies for a designated set of industries. But that was kind of an outlier back there 10, 12 years ago. Um, and so public policy, we think we can play an important role of trying to figure out how to bring together a range of employers for within the same industry. We call them a sector partnership. Uh, industry partnership is what they call them in Pennsylvania. Uh, and it is an expectation now that for at least under the WIOA law that just was passed and is now being implemented, that sector partnerships are going to be part of the conversation in terms of how it is that we're targeting training dollars for a particular industry or a particular group of firms. The challenge is, is that we've not really put out the resources there to actually create those partnerships. Um, they don't tend to happen spontaneously to bring a group of employers together with the local unions and community colleges and high schools and uh, training pro providers and others. Uh, you need some kind of seed money, some kind of research and development to kind of get that intermediary going if you don't have something like collectively bargained resources to, 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 to build it up through a training fund. Uh, we'll, I will say that at least uh, from the perspective of the Obama administration, uh, after the uh, introduction of the vice president's job-driven training plan back in uh, July 2014, which was the same day that the president signed WIOA into law, it started off uh, a series of grants where over $2 billion worth of discretionary grants now across several different agencies, where this idea of having multiple firms at the table, uh, maybe it's not industry-wide, but at least it's a portion of a regional industry to help plan out how to use different resources from education and labor for training and career tech and purposes. We think that's a real good step in the, in the right direction. Uh, we would love to see that more a part of kind of how it is that we're 
designating resources across our programs, having it come from Congress so that it's not this kind of up and down thing with a change in administrations, but actually something that's kind of part of the DNA about how it is that we target our scarce public resources when we're trying to raise people's skills. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Um, so just, uh, Catherine, I'm gonna come back to you. We started this with sort of the you know, stigma against uh, CPE, but you also note in your book that there's starting to be a thaw, that people are starting to, to rethink that uh, a little bit. So maybe you could say um, a, little, a, a little more about that and what you think is behind that and, and sort of if, um, if you think it's just kind of another episode or, or if this is gonna be part of a, a longer trend and that can be sustained. I certainly hope it isn't part of another episode. <laughs> History would suggest it probably is just because that's the way it's been before. Uh, and I want to point out some things that I think um, push us in that more episodic direction. So sitting next to me is someone who might almost be called a dinosaur. <laughs> when, when was the last I time? That. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you years. met someone who worked 40 years for the same firm? The nature of careers has changed so dramatically in the United States that the kind of investment that UPS is making has become less and less frequent. And I don't say that in admiration. I think what UPS is doing is extraordinary and terribly important. But you can see why it's in their interest to do so. If you're going to hire someone and expect them to be with you for 40 years, then the investment you make in their training and education is well worth it. You're going to amortize that over 40 years, and you're going to get you know, a, a, leading, uh, a leading figure out of that. But as our career patterns become more fractured, as people turn over faster, as the loyalty between firm and employee becomes more episodic, the incentive for this kind of investment gets weaker. And that, I think, is why we need these public policy incentives so desperately. Because left to its own devices, I don't think the market is producing right. Right. this kind of investment for exactly those reasons. But it is what happens again in Europe. If, if the, I never heard a single German manufacturer that I interviewed, or in healthcare, say, I'm really worried if I invest in this worker, they're gonna leave me next month. Mm. That free rider problem that American employers talk about all the time just isn't on their minds. In fact, it's so little on their minds that then I said to them, tell me why it actually takes, playing devil's advocate, three years to train someone in this particular skill. At Volkswagen, for example, where they're training people for three years when the jobs they're going to do probably don't demand three years worth of skill to do. I would say, well, why are you making that huge investment? They would say, this is what it takes to get quality. This is what it takes to have workers that we can lean on and tell us how to do a better job at one production process or another. We're not just investing in this person to become you know, the person who plunks the engine inside the VW. We're investing in that person to tell us about quality control, and they're going to be with us for the next 40 years. So it's really worth that investment. So we need, to, we need public policy because the market alone, especially given the way our employment system is operating, isn't going to produce those incentives. The second thing we need to do, I think, is back away from this mania for testing, which has made it so difficult for our mm -hmm. career and technical schools to prove their worth against the value of uh, high test scores. And that's not to say that students in career and technical education don't do quite well, especially in mathematics. They actually do better often than their counterparts in traditional uh, general high schools. But this constant emphasis on those kinds of skills that, that um, high stakes tests test for 
has tended to push us away from recognizing the extraordinary value and intelligence involved in the kind of skill that we see in CTE. Another area that I think we are starting to question, but it's awkward and difficult, as, as uh, my colleague has mentioned here, is that, that non-permeable barrier between school and work. Mm -hmm. Now, in the healthcare professions, you've seen, as Sandy's mentioned, you've seen a really good example of the opposite, where people are able to coordinate across, or largely coordinate across those barriers. But when I talk to employers about whether or not the skills that are coming out of technical training programs actually match what they need, they will say, well, you know, it's producing at best people who can learn to learn. Mm -hmm. And we can do that. We can then invest in training on the job. But if you're asking me, employer, whether that person is work ready on day one, the answer is no, they're not. In these apprenticeship systems where a young person or a, a mid-age worker who's coming back into the labor force or retraining, whether or not they know enough to be work ready on day one, the answer is yes, they do, because they have been combining education and work all along. So I think that apprenticeship model, or that for older workers, the retraining or in-house in training model is really very important because it's making sure that school and work are working together. And sometimes that involves actually enabling people, teachers, to move across that barrier. The Meister in Germany, the master teacher, is someone who spent 20 years on the shop floor as a worker who then decides to go back to school and get qualified as a teacher and then is taking in cohorts of apprenticeships apprentices and training them on the shop floor. That kind of movement across the barrier between worker and educator is very difficult to achieve in the US. It happens in a sort of accidental way. For example, at Aviation High School in New York, many of the teachers have second jobs. They go to the airports. They go to Newark Airport. They go to LaGuardia, and they take up their second job. And it's that second job that keeps them abreast of the skills that their young um, students need and also provides a web of connections that those students can then rely on if the teacher approves of them uh, to find a new job. So we've got to do something about enabling that barrier to become less hard and fast and a little bit more permeable if we're really going to enable the best of what we produce to pay off for our young people. Great, great, thank you. I've been thinking about when you were talking about this sort of, you know, one of the issues I've been um, chatting with my, my colleagues in the Business Society program about this is this sort of tension between the short term and the long term, mm -hmm. right? And I think we have such a challenge, whether it's, you know, sort of in business or in education or in public policy of sort of this, this you know, solving a short term problem but not taking mm -hmm. the, the long term view. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's been a, been a real challenge in, in this as well for thinking about how do we build that sustainable system that's going to be there for the, for the long term. So I'm going to ask everybody else on the panel to, to think about that and give uh, sort of your three recommendations about, you know, what are the concrete steps that we can, we can take to, uh, to build a, a system that's going to be there and serve our needs for the long term. And I'm going to note to the audience that after we go through this round, I'm going to come to you for questions, because there's so many people here. I, I really do want to start getting questions from, from you all. But uh, let me start with you, Michael, and, and maybe you can think about sort of what, what are three steps we can think about to build a longer term system? I always start with the dinosaur first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you, 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 you have the that. wisdom of the ages, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but no, it's, and, and let me just say that's an excellent point because I think you know that's one of the, the challenges that is kind of 
hidden or underpinning all of this. And, and one of the things that's been why I got interested in this whole look at uh, talent development and starting this, this new venture, as I finished the 40-year venture, I'm on a new venture, is to take a look at, if we haven't scared you enough or depressed you enough, is, <laughs> is also the generational differences that are in play in terms of how people learn and, and how they're influenced by learning is also an area that has to um, you know, be part of the, the discussion or part of the solution. And I, and I really think that organizations have to really examine their development models um, for this emerging group of leaders that are going to lead organizations into the future in order to give them the opportunity to maximize their potential. But in, to answer your question, I think there's, there's a couple of things that at least I've, as I've listened to my colleagues here, I think they're very important. I think one is, you know, we, we have to look at this uh, as it is. It's a crisis. And I think if we don't face it as a crisis, I think uh, we're all kind of leaving, you know, ourselves uh, short of the mark. And what I mean by, you know, thinking about it as a crisis is that we've got this emerging group of people that are in need of opportunities. Companies are, are continually expanding. Technology is moving so fast. And the needs for organizations are, are continuing to, to rise. And how do we close the gap? It can't be solved by any one, one person. So it can't be solved by the companies. Not, as my colleague said, not all the companies have the capital to be able to, to close these gaps. So the companies can't do it alone. Educational systems can't do it alone. Both you know, government and private partnerships can't do it alone. Everyone has to come together around this to, uh, to really, I think, think this through in terms of what are we really trying to accomplish? What is the objective here? So one would be I really firmly believe in consortiums and partnerships. And number two is I think we have to have the commitment from everyone around the table uh, that they're going to have equal skin in the game. I think that's the other piece. Even in the example I gave of our Chicago uh, Regional College program, you know, it's suffered from state budget cuts. I think we've all read about what's going on in the state of Illinois. Mm. And an example of the fits and the starts is that we, we lost funding from the state. And we had, to, we had to pony that money up to keep the program running. And again, not, a lot of companies can't do that. So if I'm a small business, and I lose funding, there goes the program. So I think the commitment is important. And I think the other piece is, is, is the continual dialogue about what are, you know, a measurement of what are we trying to accomplish and ensure that we don't just have a short-term view of this, but a more of a long-term focus uh, to get the, the results we're really, uh, really trying to, to attain. So. Great. Thank you. Mm -hmm. hey, Andy. <clears throat> Uh, so we asked about sustainability when somebody works on policy, we usually just talk about money. But let me put that aside for a second. Um, let me talk about information. Because I do actually think, it, I, I think a strong theme of the book was um, perceptions, cultural, uninformed, uh, partially informed about kind of like where the best chances are for somebody to get some decent skills and get into a decent job for their future. Um, uh, last year, we were, I think we're almost at the year anniversary, the White House had, had a thing called the Upskilling Summit. And they were trying to bring in a bunch of companies, labor management partnerships, and others that were investing in the raising of the skills of uh, current workers, uh, including entry-level workers. And there were a number of folks who were there from foreign-owned firms who were talking about apprenticeship. And there was a section just on apprenticeship we were talking about. And I saw it in Catherine's book, and I said, you know, that was something that these folks were talking about. This idea of actually requiring students as a condition of graduation, or a condition even of getting into high school, into your secondary schooling, is that you have to do some <coughs> career exploration. Um, career exploration here generally is, you know, 
I don't know, what color is your parachute? Go out on a website, <laughs> go put in your interests and see what pops out. This is actually where young people actually have to go out and spend time in a firm or a series of firms. If that was something that we were instituting, it would send a signal to parents, it would send a signal to students, it would send a signal to teachers that ultimately what you're doing is preparing them to help them make some decisions about these things down the road. And I think that it's a small thing, but it seems to me like it's something that's measurable and achievable that we should start to talk about doing something like that. And then on the more wonky end of information, um, to Catherine's point about testing and how we, you know, we test for certain things. Um, tests are supposed to be a proxies for outcomes. Let's just do a better job of measuring outcomes, right? So let's, let's do a better job of putting career and tech ed, traditional higher ed, uh, other kinds of education and training that we're investing in, both at the federal level and at the state level, all on the same scoreboard. Let's have a better, including the universities, we have to find out what are the employment and wage earning outcomes of your graduates relative to these folks who are going through career and tech ed programs. Let policymakers actually look at all of that information in one place. Let them make some decisions to figure out, oh, we're training, we're sending everybody to these kinds of programs. We have thousands of openings in this particular industry that we're not filling that we could fill with some of these very good career and tech ed programs. Until we put all that information in one place and get policymakers to see these things as all part of the same system and get to be, have been measured by the same set of criteria, we're never actually gonna make some more informed decisions about where it is that we need to re redirect some of our attention. Great, thanks. Sandy. So I guess for sustainability, <clears throat> I think we need to re-envision. I was struck both by um, Catherine's comments and when I read the, the book, that what she was talking about isn't just that the US doesn't value CTE, it's that we actually mean something different mm -hmm. than what she's described. So when people sometimes say, well, um, career and technical education feels less than, sometimes they're right. And just in my own expert, you know, sort of work experience, there can be a career and technical program like the one in the Lehigh Valley um, career and technical education uh, uh, high school where there's a waiting list and people get college credits and there's a UPS simulation on the floor, mm -hmm. right? So, and you can advance to an associate degree, you can get a job, but it's not lacking rigor and it's mm -hmm. not lacking, um, in fact, you get college credits. Mm -hmm. In too often, particularly in healthcare, the career side is non-credit and then the advancement side is credit. So, you know, time to completion for adults in particular matter. And so I, I think what Catherine described in her book is really re-envisioning our career and technical mm -hmm. right. um, education. It's not just valuing it, it's, but it's different in kind. And so I would say um, we need to think of it not just less than, but make it greater than and embed, you know, Yes, math skills, you get, don't get in healthcare or any of the occupations if you don't know statistics, but maybe they don't, people, I don't need to know quadratic equations in my everyday life, but that's the entrance exams in many colleges, right? Yes, of course we should have some liberal arts reading in all of our programs because it not only makes us good citizens, but it makes for, um, improves critical thinking skills, it, it, it lends to teamwork. But that's a different system than what we have now. And that, so I think what Catherine is writing about is a system we should strive for. And that's really about re-envisioning, not just about reinvesting. Mm -hmm. Great. Wonderful. So going to open it up for questions from you all. We do have microphones. And please uh, introduce yourself. Um, and behind the poll, I can't see Sini, but whoever you hand the microphone to, Sini gets to answer, ask a question. Uh, but, <laughs> 
<laughs> but please uh, tell us who you are and where you're from. Um, and can she give a microphone? Hi, my name is Michael Scholl, and I wrote a book about three, four years ago called Made in America, which examined uh, four factory environments of factories that did well uh, during the recession. I'm sounding like I'm going to make a comment. I promise I'm going to ask a question. Um, in Germany, from my own personal experience, the most important thing is security and stability, and then there's security and stability, and then there's security and stability, <laughs> dating back to Bismarck and the social security system. In the United States, it's choice. And if you're focusing on choice, and as I said, I do have a question, is none of you has mentioned wages. And I was at one of these things 18 months ago where they were talking about the lack of people to fill technical jobs, and they did no sensitivity analysis within the analysis of what they were paying. And it turns out one company that couldn't hire people was paying $11 an hour for college graduates. Okay. So my point is this. I'm going to give you a hypothetical, and I'd like to see you respond. If the minimum wage is raised at the national level, and if there was a $5 incremental minimum wage if you were in a formal federally certified apprentice program, demand pull, let people make their own choices about where they're going to work. Is there a reason that with all the discussions, there's been no discussion of the use of wages to pull people into technical education? Because America, the millennials I know, they don't plan five years in advance like a German mm -hmm. kid. Mm -hmm. and, and they'd be interested if there was sushi in the cafeteria mm -hmm. and pizza rather than what I'm going to do five years from now. But the issue I want, to talk, I want you to answer is what is the impact of wages on pulling people into these educational programs? And I mean wages right now not wages five or 10 years from now. OK. I'm, I want to take two more questions and then, and then do, do a round. So we have the impact of wages to pull people into technical education. Very good question. Um, so let me go in the back over there. Um, and Hi, Maureen. Um, I'm Renee Bryce Ward. I'm a consultant here in DC. Um, but I'm actually asking with my hat on as a board member of a foundation in Arkansas. Um, in Arkansas, there are efforts being made to really raise the education level. Um, they actually have a very low unemployment rate. There's 4.2% unemployment as opposed to 5.0 nationally. But the poverty level is like 45th, 46th in the country. My concern for them is as they raise the educational level, are there going to be jobs that folks with this raise educational level can occupy? So if you can talk a little bit about the matching of geography, jobs available, education levels. OK, great. So are there jobs available in the geography? And then down here. Um, uh, Hello, my name is Anna Sessman. I'm at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about the cultural shifts. I was just um, speaking to a number of manufacturers who were saying we, um, we haven't convinced the moms that there are manufacturing jobs. Um, you know, in, in line with what he said about the wages, it may seem like a uh, economically rational choice to not, um, you know, look into a manufacturing career if you think that the sector is losing jobs. So. Um, and also, where do you see these? I mean, you said there's a lot of weight, there's a lot of job growth in the middle school jobs, but they're not exactly always um, middle wages. Which are the better paid ones? Which are the um, worst paid ones? And are they going to be there in five years? Because I think people think, if you think over the long term, that middle skill jobs have been being automated or offshored or hollowing out. Thank you. Okay, great. So we have a um, question on, let me see if I have this right on. 
on the job growth and where are the places we're seeing growth in middle skill jobs, as well as um, sort of this question of um, match to manufacturing jobs. For example, moms not choosing manufacturing. We have a question about sort of geography and are there good jobs in place, particularly in rural areas and, and in places like Arkansas. And then we have a question about what about wages and, and what about wages pulling people into technical jobs. So those are our questions. Who would like to start? I'll talk about wages. Okay. And I think, uh, from our just from the perspective, I think, you know, I think you got to look at the kinds of jobs that you know that you're you're attracting, you know, new entrants into the workplace. And so, you know, you think about um, the jobs at UPS. I mean, you know, the entry level jobs typically are part time jobs, and it's and they're built really to co coincide with you going to school. That's kind of the the model. Um, but all of the the programs that I that I spoke about are in a way to help facilitate the part-time employee when they're ready to move into a full-time job where they can have a sustainable uh, wage opportunity. You know, our delivery driver jobs, our engineering jobs, our management positions, all of those are, are set to move you through the process to, to get you in the, in the lane that you want to get in. Um, you know, and, and again, I think what's been interesting is even as technology has made, you know, some of the jobs, people would think technology would make jobs go away. They've actually made the jobs easier but actually they've created more opportunity because you need more technology, more people with expertise in technology to help underpin the, the rapid you know, movement towards that, you know, that, that light. And so um, I, I think from, just from you know, the, the perspective, my perspective and my opinion of this is that you know, um, wages isn't the only answer, but it is something you know, short term that people are looking at in terms of how do I get myself into a job that actually provides me the ability to have self-sufficiency and sustainability. And so I think if we, that's, that's one of those objectives we have to have in mind so that when we build these, these processes out, they're built to an end, they're not built to an end to meet the needs that, that you're, you're trying to accomplish, so. Let me take a, a crack at all three of these questions. The first thing is that these middle, middle skill jobs I'm talking about, the wages range from about 40,000 to 80,000. These are not minimum wage jobs. They do require a lot more skill than they used to, and that's also to our colleague from the Wall Street Journal, I think very important. In many of these industries, they already have been automated. So the kind of skill, to your point, that's necessary in order to work in a modern steel mill is the kind of skill it takes to read a computer readout and to catch flaws in steel production. Nobody's out on the shop floor anymore. Those jobs are automated decades ago. So we will never see the number of jobs come back that we lost, but the jobs that do come back are much higher skill requirements. Mm -hmm. And they do require more education. And they are going to require more on the shop training. But those have already been automated. And now it is advantageous. It is advantageous for auto manufacturer to come back because they're they're feeding an American market. That's where the market is for what they're selling. So a lot of production is moving back. It will never be the number of jobs that we lost in steel. But the jobs that are in steel are much higher skill levels, and they are better paid than the ones that we lost. To the point about geography, I want to tell a short story. Um, two weeks ago, I was in Sheffield, England. Now, Sheffield is very much like Baltimore or Detroit. This is a city that was a coal city, a steel city. It lost all of it. It's been decades since Sheffield has had a robust economy. 
But the University of Sheffield opened up a training center in advanced manufacturing. It's both a research center and a training center for apprentices in advanced manufacturing. And guess what? All these firms are starting to come into Sheffield. They're coming into Sheffield because the skilled labor is now there for them to hire. So Rolls-Royce, Boeing, all of these big firms, and a whole lot of small ones that don't have the capacity to do this training by themselves but can rely on this central regional training center are now coming back to Sheffield, and there are dozens of them. So geography is not necessarily destiny. Investment makes a difference in moving opportunities for firms as well as workers. So yes, there are regions of, of England as well as there are regions in, in the US in which employment has either been very low paid and low skilled, the low road version. But with the right investments, it can become the high road version. No one in Sheffield 10 years ago would ever have expected this to be possible, but it has turned out to be possible. OK, great. Um, maybe Maybe I can take a couple more questions. Uh, let's see. So over here. Um, uh, my name is Lori Mack from International Baccalaureate. Um, and first, a quick comment uh, to you. Um, uh, International Baccalaureate has a new program called the Career Related Program that combines an existing CTE package um, and then two or more uh, IB courses. So there's that academic rigor and the practical skills. Um, and then this uh, core that has lots of critical thinking and employability skills, it's a really cool program. Um, it's in over 100 schools so far uh, worldwide. So I, have, I happen to be smart and bring some collateral with me if anybody's interested, but it's exactly that. It's, it's good CTE, not just any CTE. Um, so I absolutely agree there. Um, anyway, my question is, sorry to grandstand a little bit. Um, so I don't know if anyone's been following ACICS, the accrediting body that is, um, on its decline right now and is being sued by a whole bunch of different people um, for basically accrediting schools, um, a lot of them offering uh, degrees and certifications in these middle skill types of jobs, um, and offering accreditation to, uh, the claim is, uh, uh, to schools that have no business uh, issuing any kind of degree uh, in anything. Um, and so I'd be really curious to know what you all think about accreditation um, and its role in ensuring good quality programs and training um, for the middle skills space. Okay. Uh, accreditation, yes? Hi, my name is Margaret Cope. I'm an independent consultant. Um, the largest government um, apprentice program is the military. And there was no mention of that. Um, and I, I wonder why. And is it possible to look at it to see if there might be lessons learned and maybe that would be something that could be applied to the um, country. Okay, great. In the military, um, sure. And right here. Thanks. Uh, good afternoon, um, Katie Balot with the Markle Foundation. Um, just really interested in perspectives about being able to leverage technology to try to open up and create some more work-based learning, internship, apprenticeship opportunities. Just recognizing that there really is a, um, a much more demand than, than supply. Okay, great. So, uh, role of accreditation, role of the military, and work-based learning. Uh, Andy and Sandy, I'm going to let you answer this round, if you, or at least start. Andy, one of the first ones? <laughs> <laughs> and yes, you may go back to one of the first ones if you'd like. Let me take on the accreditation one first. So, I'm, I, I'm not an expert on accreditation, but I do know that part of the challenges that you're talking about, we have these conversations about higher education institutions in general, 
I go back to the point that I made before, which is we're trying to make decisions about what's a good institution or a bad institution based on a set of curricular and structural and institutional measures as opposed to what are the outcomes of the students who are leaving those schools. Because um, I think that you would find that we have a much better way of, and we are making some assessments now even amongst some Title IV organizations, Title IV institutions that probably should not be eligible to receive Title IV. 35% of right. ACICS accredited students in this program graduated. Right. The challenge is, is that we've identified some institutions that we're going to measure that for, and then other institutions we're not. So we'll, we'll measure, we'll take a community college program and want to see what the employment outcomes are. We'll take a proprietary school and want to see what the employment outcomes are, but we won't look at a flagship university and find out what the employment outcomes are for their graduates. And I would just say, let's just measure them for all of them, and let's see kind of then what your return on investment is for, for those. Um, can I just go back to the middle skill thing? Just as a, a brief note, which is, Sandy was absolutely right, middle skill does not mean middle wage. And actually, if you look at, Middle skill is kind of an odd uh, category. There really are, like Harry Holzer has done some new work on this, where, you know, there's, where we kind of have old middle skill jobs, which really are the ones that are somewhat shrinking, more traditional production, clerical, uh, some areas of construction. And then we have newer middle skill jobs where there's growth, which are the ones that have these higher, sometimes STEM kind of uh, uh, skill requirements in manufacturing and some of the tech, uh, rad tech, farm tech, other parts of healthcare. Things like that. So I do think that we need to actually look at there are different stories for different occupations. Um, and those for where there is growth, there is actually wage growth in addition to actual job opening growth as well. So we need to differentiate between different types. Okay. So um, accreditation, um, I, just we don't look just at accreditation. We look at, um, we do look at accreditation. We look at completion rates. We look at placement rates. We look at student loan default rates. So, and we, also look at the quality of the program based on what our employers are saying. So I don't think accreditation is one screen, but it's not the be all and end all of the screen. And then, military? No, technology. forget the technology. technology. Oh, technology. Yes, thank you. Sorry. See, I'm getting old. I can't remember these things. So, um, <laughs> so we think that there's a really important role for technology. So let me just give you an example of where it works and where it doesn't. So. When we do, as I said, increasingly the Bachelor of Science in Nursing is the, the desired credential in, in nursing and healthcare. Um, a lot of very good online RN to BSN. So it's post-licensure, great programs. We do um, cohort, cohorts online where people come together. Actually, they're not even all attending the same um, online program. So very good use of technology in that, in that area. Where it might be bad is if you're talking about something like education and health coaching, because you can't simulate the kind of personal interaction. So I think technology has an important role in all um, education, but particularly in occupational related education, but it has to be used smartly. Thank you for reminding me of your question. You can, you can make one last point and then we're going to wrap up. Go I just wanted ahead. to speak of the registered apprentice program because we're, we, and you can't talk about everything you're involved with, but yes, we're, we're absolutely involved in the, in the RA program. We, got our, we have our, our driver job certified. It, it's, a, it's a cumbersome process, but, but it is one that's bearing some fruit as well as it underpins you know, the, the heavy investment we, we continue to make uh, with, with our veteran initiatives. But that is one that we're participating in. Great. Does have a Thank great you. Program. So I, wanna, I want you all to join me in thanking our panel.
sale out in the lobby, so please uh, stop by, get a book. If you have existing questions, uh, please ask. And thank you so much for your participation. I love the Oh, sure. No problem. Thank you so much. That was oh, nice.